0: Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning again to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Our text will be this morning, verses 35 through 48. And again, something in the context, as we've considered in recent weeks of coming up to this point, that Jesus has had been addressing how one is to live in relation to earthly goods and first of all in the parable of the rich young or the rich fool who made preparation for all of his earthly life but made none for eternity the word that goes forth from the words from the mouth of Jesus is that don't be covetous don't be greedy don't consider that life consists of the things which you Possess. But also there is the, the fact of the matter that we considered last week that we do have to give some thought to worldly necessities. We do have to have things like food. We have to have things like clothing, shelter, those things that, that we are compelled to give some thought to. And Jesus' exhortation in that context was don't be anxious about these things. Don't be overly concerned about these things. Remember that you have a Father in heaven who takes care of you, who knows your need. He has made you. He has made you as you are. He made you as creatures that are dependent upon him, and he is able and willing to provide for your needs. In our text today here, Jesus continues with direction for life with an eternal and a heavenly perspective, which is what he has called us to do even in the last two weeks as we've looked at these previous texts, as he exhorts the... The ones who have been hearing him with this parable of this rich fool. That you are to be, to be rich toward God. To have that heavenly perspective. And then last week as we saw the exhortation in verses 33 and fall, back up to verse 31. But to seek his kingdom. To let the pursuit of your heart be this things, Not to be worried or not to be burdened. Not to be, in fact, the word is not to be distracted from what is essential in life. What is the, really the core issue of life? And that is seeking the kingdom of God. So to have these other things in perspective. So living with that type of a perspective. Living with an eternal or a heavenly perspective. How are we to live now? With the realization that an eternity is in fact looming. How should we live? How big of an influence should eternal issues, and in particular today, how big of an influence should the promised return of Jesus Christ have in the way that we live our lives today? Is it that big of an issue or not? So that's what we'll be considering this morning as we look at our text here. Begin reading with me Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and following. Be dressed In readiness, and keep your lamps alight, and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table. And will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given, much shall be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more." Part of seeking God's kingdom, as Jesus exhorts his listeners to, as we saw back in thirty-one, part of seeking the kingdom of God is living in anticipation of His return. It's, live, it's living with the anticipation that having the kingdom of God having come, with Christ having come, and its inauguration, it's begun. They're waiting for that day of consummation when it's completely fulfilled. So to live. To live seeking the kingdom of God is to live with some measure of anticipation of that which still lies before us. We understand that we're not going to experience the fullness of God's kingdom in this life and in this day. That there is a glory that awaits that that will not be manifested until Christ returns. And that is when Christ's kingdom will be consummated. Well, Jesus instructions here for proper anticipation Proper expectation. He gives us in terms of, of attire. The words that are used in verse 35. Be dressed. Properly dressed. Dressed in readiness. He says. Ready for his return in general. But also anticipating specific elements of that return. In other words. What will transpire? What will it be like? What takes place? And so, understanding that the return of Christ was, a, was an important part of Jesus' own teaching. This, was, this is His message. We want you to understand look at what, what it is to live in expectation of that day. What we might expect on that day. What should we expect regarding Christ's return? Now, this will not be, incidentally, a exhaustive discussion or message upon the different views of last days. Of the different positions that are held in regard to eschatology or the time of Christ's return, end times view. We're not going there this morning. We may on another occasion and we're not going to try to resolve all the divisions that lie within Circles of Evangelicals, and also even within the Reformed community. Uh, That's not what we're about today, but we are going to focus upon what is very clear from this text. Those things, we would leave this text and say these things certainly are true. These are things in which we would all agree upon. And if we want to go the other route sometime, we may may save that for one of our men's Saturday morning discussions, perhaps, but uh, not for this day. So don't come with your... Pen and pencil, read. All right, here. It is. Here are the four views of the last days. He's going to present them all. And what's wrong with three of those? <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. That was one that I thought was right. So that's we're not going there today. So don't don't anticipate that. Well, first of all, what we want to consider here that Christ regarding Christ's return is that He is first of all faithful to. His promise, and what I want to address here, the first issue is the certainty of Christ's return—that this is an event that, in fact, that we can rest assured of. In fact, the doctrine of Jesus' second coming, the doctrine of Jesus' return, is a doctrine that sets Jesus apart from other religious and other philosophical leaders. Now, you don't have many of the leaders and the men that are the founders of these other religious groups who are speaking of the day when they will return. They may offer great philosophical advice, great words of wisdom, but they don't speak of a time of their returning. Jesus, however, does. It's a message that is clearly taught by Jesus Christ Himself. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, for example. And even in quoting this, I realize that there are various interpretations from Matthew 24, and I do not hold to a full preterist position, and that is that all of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 A.D. I think significant portions of it were, but not in its entirety. But in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31 And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Also, Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. There is another coming and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Very clear. Very clear. Jesus is very forthright in His language about a return. See, Jesus' work was not completed. And it will not be completed until He returns. Jesus' first coming. Dealt primarily with a, in the redemptive nature of His work. Coming to, to die. Coming to have the wrath of God poured out upon Him for the sake of His people. So it was a redemptive purpose and it was the inauguration of God's kingdom with Christ's first coming. However, with His second coming, we have, as the very words of Jesus, there is a coming in His glory. There is a coming where Jesus will be revealed for who he is. He will be revealed as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords. There will be no mistaking him on the second coming. There'll there be none who will look and say, This can't be the Messiah. There'll be no questions about it. When Jesus returns, and it will be the consummation, the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And we can think about when we think about Jesus' second coming, we it must be considered and in evaluating the ministry of Jesus altogether. I mean, those who would charge that, well, the idea of that Jesus would be returning, that's, that's fairy tales, that's myth, those are not things that you would actually expect to happen. You've got to examine then the entirety of Christ's ministry. Did Jesus teach these things, which there becomes the issue of can we trust the gospel accounts, which we can? And if he did teach these things, are they true? Can we trust what Jesus said? Or was he deluded? And if he was deluded or in error about these things, why believe him in any other things? So we had to examine the entire ministry of Jesus when you consider the reliability of his message regarding his return. So Jesus refuses to be placed on equal footing with other religions. It's not the same. It's not just a... Another religion. I was within earshot just the other day of a, I wasn't seeing, I was just hearing about was somebody was watching Jeopardy and I was, as Jeopardy was on, the question was asked, I think it was, is it Jeopardy? No, it was another show right after that. I think. But anyway, the question was asked was, do you think that the world would be a better place to live if all people practice one religion? You know, my mind immediately went, Ah, here we go, this syncretism. Let's blend them all together. Let's mix them all up. Take the the good things of Christianity, the good things of Hinduism, the good things of Buddhism, all this, and mix them all up. That was my immediate reaction. I thought, Oh, man, this is atrocious. How sickening. Then I thought just a little bit further. I said, Wait a minute. If they were all Christians... Yeah, it would be if everyone embraced the Christ who is God, if everyone embraced the religion of the true and the living God. Yes, it would be a much better place to live. But Jesus refuses to be mixed, refuses to be blended, refuses to be set alongside other religions. Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He is Lord of all these things. And Jesus is very forthright about His return, is He not? And He just very simply says here, be ready. Verse 35, be dressed in readiness. Rest assured, He will indeed return. So we're called to be seeking His kingdom. Verse 31, to have these riches toward God. Verse 21, living for an eternal and a heavenly treasure. And if we do so, that choice will prove to be wise. In other words, you'll not get to the to the end of the things and be disappointed. If you choose to live your life as Christ has exhorted us to seek the kingdom of God first and foremost in your heart and in your life, you choose to give yourself to riches toward God, whatever it may mean and mean in poverty and earthly things, that you'll not be disappointed. He will return. So hence, Christ's return has been the teaching and the expectation of the church. And for good reason, we have, first of all, in Acts, we'll turn a few places here this morning very quickly. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. As Jesus, at His ascension here, He has returned to heaven. In, fact, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 10 the disciples and those that were gathered were gazing intently into the sky while He was departing. And behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. So here, beyond the witness and the testimony of Jesus Himself, you have an angelic witness here Testifying, promising the return of Christ. And then the message of the of the church throughout throughout the New Testament. Paul speaks in First Corinthians. <clears throat> and this is not exhaustive, incidentally, it's just a few that I've landed on. First Corinthians chapter four. <clears throat> verse five. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait. Until the Lord comes, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of man's hearts. So Paul gives particular exhortation in in regard to Christ's return here to the saints at Corinth. First Thessalonians, we have just finished reading Thessalonians on uh, Wednesday evenings. And it was just as we we're going through what our attention was brought to the fact that at the end of each chapter of First Thessalonians is a reference made to Christ's return. Of course, that was an issue with among the saints of Thessalonica. Has he returned or not? And so Paul has to correct some erroneous thinking there. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 19. For who is our hope and our joy, our crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming for you are our glory and our joy. Again, referencing the return of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Chapter 4, verses 13 and following. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as they do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You kind of get the idea there might be a theme in that book, don't you? And certainly there is. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six and following. For after after all, it is only just "...for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Then the account we've read already this morning, our New Testament reading. We'll not read it again. Second Peter chapter 3. There Peter uh, addresses the charged by by the mockers and by the skeptics well where is the promise of his return everything's continued as norm and so it shall every normal continues until one day he shall indeed return then john tells us in in his letters first john chapter 2 <clears throat> First John chapter two, verse twenty eight, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming. And then down in chapter three, verse two, beloved now and this is first John chapter three, verse two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Then finally, another account of John in the book of Revelation. You certainly could not consider in detail the, the return of Christ without looking at Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. In the words of Jesus Christ himself, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. And so we see here a very clear message from the words of Jesus, also with the angelic message at Jesus' ascension and the message of the New Testament writers by the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God, speak confidently often of Christ's return. So that for us to embrace such a doctrine, to embrace such a position as the people of God, we simply join in unison in anticipation of Jesus' return with those who have gone before us. We simply align ourselves with the words of Jesus Christ, align ourselves with the writing of, God, of Christ's apostles there, particularly Paul and Peter and John and others certainly would have spoken of that as well. So certain, as certain as His first coming. We rest assured as the people of God of his second coming to complete his work of consummation of his kingdom. So those who are the naysayers, as we witnessed there in second Peter, they mock to their own destruction. And there are naysayers of our day as well. Those who would look at the church and those who would look at the believers and, and see if, and what part and portion of the church there truly is an expectation and an anticipation of Christ's return. And they would look upon us and they would pity us. What are you doing? You're you're governing so much of your life based upon this idea that Jesus is going to actually return. Did you hear this earlier this week that the Hindu was invited to pray in the Senate? Thursday morning, I believe a Hindu led the opening prayer for the United States Senate. And it was, you know, some Christians have responded and great concern about that. You know, here we have quote, our national motto, one nation under God. And you have a Hindu who believes in multiplicity of gods. But you go into the context of the sin and you proclaim Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, is coming back and you will give an account to them. What do you think kind your of response you're going to get in that setting? So the message of Christ's return certainly is not a message that's embraced beyond the church. And sad to say, those who profess to be part of the church, it's a a message that I think is is taking a beating. And I would question whether or not one could truly be a believer and not live in anticipation of Christ's return. I just don't see how, how that could happen. If Jesus is to be trusted at all, He is to be trusted in all. And He has issued His words to His people. He will return. So it's a fitting exhortation that Jesus gives to to the disciples, to the hearers, and also for us today. Be ready. Be ready for Christ's return. But it's also a message to be proclaimed to all the world, to all those who today are outside Christ. You need to be ready for Christ's return. Make preparation. He will return. Christ is coming and he will come as the judge, the righteous judge of all the earth. He's not coming as the meek and mild. He's coming in his wrath and he's coming and he's unleashing his holy angels. As we saw there in Second, second Thessalonians, he's coming to release his fury against the enemies of the gospel. And the enemies of the gospel are all those who are outside Christ. To make preparation of heart. If you're outside Christ today, that to own Jesus as your Lord and Savior now, before you are compelled at His at His appearing, to bow before Him and to acknowledge Him as Lord and you will. Have you prepared? Are you this morning a child of God? I speak particularly with our young people. Are you a believer? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He will return. And you will see Him as such. And if you've not bowed the knee here in this place, on this earth, you will bow the knee then. And then it's too late. There is no longer, no longer repentance. There is no longer believing unto salvation once He returns. Have you embraced Christ? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Have you heeded the words of Jesus Christ? Be ready. Are you ready? And there's application to believers as well. We're we'll going there in a minute. But just to, in the context of this is a certain promise. Jesus is faithful to his promise. He will return. How more? How more clear can he say to his disciples, "If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again." It's clear. So we don't waver on this thing. And it's certainly not one of the things that we're going to sacrifice. One of the doctrines that we will sacrifice. We may disagree on the specifics of how it's going to happen. How it's going to pan out there. But we will not deny Jesus' literal, bodily, visible return. He will return just as He ascended into heaven there in Acts chapter 1. Also, we see here at Jesus' return, there is favor here expressed. Favor to those who are prepared. Favor to the prepared. And Jesus referencing His return as He's speaking here about His return. He speaks of those who receive God's favor. And He uses here three illustrations. or They're parable-like images or pictures of servants. And the first one he gives to us is the picture or the image of those servants awaiting their master's return from a wedding feast. That's verses 35 through 38. The second one he gives here is the, the image or the picture or the parable of a steward who's been given charge over the, rest, the, the master's servants. He's responsible for, for distribu- distributing the rations. Verses 42 through 46. And then the third image that he gives here is basically to, to slaves or servants in general, verses forty-seven and forty-eight. And he describes here in these in the first two in the first two images, the first two pictures that he gives to us, he describes them as being blessed. Verse thirty-seven: Blessed are those slaves, favored. Graced are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert. Down in verse thirty-eight, whether he comes in the second watch or the third, and finds him so, here he is. Blessed, favored, graced are those slaves. And then down in verse forty-three, blessed, favored, graced is that slave. Whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So, the exhortation here of verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. And then also in verse 36. Be like men who are waiting. For something, again, the picture gives there in particular. Is followed by an assurance that there is blessing and there is favor to those who hear and heed his words here regarding his return. So it's to live He's called calls us to live in a continual state of preparedness for the Master's return and the uncertainty of the time of his return verses. 38 and 40 through 40 there you don't know when it's going to happen he said that it will come it's like a thief in the world what's that a, and a thief come he doesn't come and knock on your door he doesn't come giving you a notice ahead of time I'm going to visit on this night if you don't mind to to rob you of all your earthly possessions that the thief he comes unannounced and he comes unexpected in fact if if the if the the uh, Head of the house had known when he was coming, he'd been ready for him. He would have met him. But Jesus' here word is is to live in that continual state of preparedness. For the Master's return. You don't know when He's returning. You don't know if it will be the first watch or the second watch or the third watch when this Master returns from this wedding feast. But whenever it is, you're ready. You're living in expectation of His return. And He comes and He knocks on the door. And you're there to let Him in. Preparedness. Living with that preparedness for His return. And Christ's return will be... Verse 40... Christ's return will be at an unexpected hour. You too be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. And that's as close as we can get, folks. Forget. You know, I've mentioned before, forget 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. It didn't happen. And forget whatever else comes out in our modern day. I guess there will be... Since this is the year two thousand seven, there'd be seven reasons why Jesus will return in two thousand seven if somebody thinks he's gonna do that. This is the closest we get when you don't expect it. So if you got a people waiting on a mountaintop expecting it, they're wrong. (laughs) But it's but he's saying that if you're living if you're living in a spirit where you've, you've succumbed to the goals and the ambitions and the pleasures of this world so that you have no vision, you have no thought toward Christ's return. Because, to be honest with you, it just doesn't mean that much to you. Jesus says, that's the time you better be ready. He speaks a blessing on those who are alert, verse 37, whenever He comes. And then we see something, really the nature of that blessing. In verse 37b, it's, it's really a, it's one of these, I think, profound truths of the Scripture. You don't see it anywhere else here. But look what he says here. Blessed are those slaves, and the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself. And have them recline at the table, the, at the tables added in the NASB. And will come up and wait on them. You thought Jesus' days of humility and service were over, didn't you? See, the heart of Jesus, his heart of service, his heart of ministry to his people and to his saints continues even when he returns. For those who are living with an anticipation that there is a sense in which Christ still is serving. Although we are his servants. the additional blessing, verse 43. To those who faithfully discharge their duties as a steward. They've been entrusted with responsibilities. And certainly there's a clear application here to pastors and to ministers. I feel the weight of this one. But I think it goes beyond that. I think there is application beyond that. One who's been entrusted with the responsibility by his master. Who fulfills his assigned task with an understanding and with an anticipation and expectation of the Master's return, hence there's going to be a day of reckoning. So I'm not going to be a fool here. I'm not going to live my life, and I'm not going to take the things that the Master has entrusted to me and and waste them and spoil them, because I know whenever, I don't know when, but there's going to be a day of reckoning. I better be ready. I'd better be faithful with what He has entrusted into my hands. Faithful with the stewardship He has given to us. And then the reward that He speaks of there in verse 44 Truly I say to you, He will put Him in charge of all His possessions. That the, that the part of the blessing of God's people is that we're entrusted with more, greater responsibility. So the charge here is for the disciples and for the people of God to faithfully execute their divinely ordained roles. Be a good steward of that which God has entrusted to you. So God didn't make me a pastor. God hasn't called me to be an elder. God hasn't called me to be a deacon. Or God hasn't called me to... You're gifted me to serve as a teacher doesn't make any difference you be faithful as a child of God with what God has called you to do with the gifts that He has entrusted you that's your responsibility it's not to try to climb some type of a, of a chain of command here you know the goal is well ultimately I'll be an elder you know deacon is not a step up to elder by the way I've been in churches that was, that was the context it was you be a deacon for a while, and then you become an elder. And the qualifications are different. You have men of of God who are gifted as deacons to be deacons all the days of their life. And, man, they're wonderful men. And I've seen the the horrors of, of men who are not qualified to serve as elders doing so. It doesn't work well. Be faithful in what God has called you to do. So in light of that, Jesus' words here to the disciples to, and to us. Be dressed in readiness. And the word there in verse 40. You too be ready. How are we to be prepared? What is the, the dress? Or the attire? Of Readiness. And I've jotted down a few things. And again, I don't intend to be exhaustive here as I've, as I've given some thought to this. What is it to, to be prepared and to, and to be dressed in readiness? What does that mean practically? What what should that look like? I think I, I jotted down five or six things here. First of all, I think it's to live with a conviction of His return. To live with a conviction of His return and a call to accountability that goes with that. In other words, we recognize in Jesus, when Jesus comes... There are going to be some ramifications. And if I am living with a conviction that Jesus Christ is going to return. And I'm going to stand before him and give an account. It's going to affect the way that I live. It should. So that's part of being ready. Is having that conviction that Christ is going to return. And that I will give an account before him. Secondly. Is to be faithful to his calling of stewardship, which I've just addressed to you. Simply put, to recognize God's calling upon my life, whether it be ministry in the church, outside the church, whether it be to my family, whether it be in the workplace. Whatever God has called me to do, called me to be in those places, I am a steward of those things. And I'm to be faithful as a steward in those things. So that in the workplace that my life is a testimony of the grace of God at work in my heart. There is a realization that I am different as a child of God. So to live faithful to his calling of stewardship. Third thing. To live or to have an attitude of longing. An attitude of longing for his return. I think that's greatly lacking in the church today. And to be honest with you, I think it's greatly lacking in in this heart. That I don't often long for the return of Christ and by that i mean to to live with a with a holy discontent in the world in which i live where sin is running rampant to live with a holy discontent with the issue of sin that is still active within my own heart and to say lord jesus come quickly Come, and if it grieves my heart, if it grieves me to see sin running as it runs, what must it do to the heart of God? Lord, come quickly and bring an end to it. To live with a longing for Christ's return. That's being dressed in readiness. I'm looking forward to it. I want that to happen. To live as... Pilgrims on this earth like the the saints of the faithful mentioned there in Hebrews 11. Of those who are looking for a better place, they've got a longing for, for a city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. You're looking beyond these things and to long for these things, to long for His return. Because for Christ to come is to be free from sin. For Christ to come is to be in His presence. To see Him as He is. And to know Him as He is. And to worship Him and to glorify Him as He is deserving that humans should do. Do you live with a holy longing of Christ's return? And a holy discontent with the world in which we live and the own sin with our own hearts? fourth thing is a tire of readiness and as goes with the first these are not completely exclusive but committed to a holiness of life committed to a holiness of life a life that is submissive To the word of God that recognizes that God has revealed to us what he desires for us to do. And so we go to the word of God with expectation. We go to the word of God with the spirit of humility. And we ask, Lord, God, speak to me. Direct my heart. Direct my life through your word today. Through my reading today. And with that, submissive to his word, just a repentance of sin. Be a good repenter. A quick repenter. A deep repenter. So that when the Word of God it strikes or whether it be just something you know you've done, you haven't had to reference the Word of God. You just know it was wrong. (laughs) That you're just quick to repent. That's living in expectation. That's, That's the dress of readiness. The things that you would put aside if you knew if you knew he was coming today those sins that you those sins that so easily beset us those things that we would not dare to be caught doing if christ returns readiness fifth thing desiring his favor And his praise. You know, Jesus says that there is blessing that awaits, and it's not wrong to live in anticipation of those things. To desire to hear the words of Jesus when we stand before him, good and faithful servant. You want to hear that? If that's a desire, let that be a desire, let that be a motivation for holiness and. Submission to Him. I desire His favor. I desire the the words of praise. Good and faithful servant. When I stand before Him. Again, that's not intended to be exhausted. There's enough to chew on though, isn't it? Are we living in the dress of readiness? Are Are we dressed in readiness? Favor to those who are prepared. Finally, we see that there is a fairness to those who are punished the blessing that is promised and the joyous blessing that is uh, is called the blessed hope of the, the return of Christ for the church and for the people of God and oh it will be wonderful it will be a glorious day indeed but Jesus also makes it clear that his return will not be a blessed occasion for all so he finishes this parable of the steward that he began here in 42 He finishes his parable in 45. He says, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women. In other words, he begins to live as though he's not coming. And it's not going to make any difference. Or the timing of his coming is so far removed, it makes no difference what I do now begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and get drunk. In verse 46, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So he finishes this parable of this steward who loses perspective of stewardship of a master's return and it becomes abusive so that when the master does return and he will return, it's completely unexpected and the judgment that the master brings and he executes against this steward is very severe. And the terminology that Jesus uses here will cut him in pieces and assign him as a place with unbelievers. It's very graphic. It's very strong to drive home the point to the hearer Serious business. It's serious business for Christ to return and you're not ready. You're not expecting Him. That there is a serious degree of punishment that will be inflicted. And he concludes with some insights to us. Of the fairness of that punishment that is inflicted. Verses 47 and 48. First of all, we see that that the fairness, the punishment is inflicted according to one's knowledge or according to the light with which they have. In other words, to whom much is given, much is required. There are, it seems, degrees of punishment. There are degrees of fury. There are degrees, evidently, of even eternal punishment and hell. I don't think we need to make to make the mistake of thinking that the slightest degree of hell will be a pleasurable place. It will not. But there are varying degrees of punishment according to one's light, according to the truth of which they have revealed, and according to the truth they have walked away from, they have rejected. And second, we see this, that one's ignorance in the matter does not excuse him. May be completely ignorant. The one he says in verse 47. The one that knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with him shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it. 48. He didn't know it. And he committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. In other words... Just because you don't know doesn't mean you're off the hook. Now some have taken this particular verse and come to the conclusion that well obviously here there is a purgatory. Some have looked at this and come to the conclusion well obviously here eternal destruction is not eternal. It's for a while and then the human soul is annihilated. Annihilation is becoming more and more popular in evangelicalism of our day. Or some of I dare not say what some have come to. I probably don't know what some have come to if they've read this passage. And the danger with, with looking at that is, is going and developing a doctrine based upon a parable or a story. You don't do that. You know, for such doctrines as... Endless punishment, which I believe the Scripture teaches. And for such doctrines as the guilt of all men before God, whether they've heard or not, I believe the Scripture teaches. We don't develop those doctrines by looking at a parable, which is used to give some insight to something. And oh, this is the way it must be. So that's where we have to be careful to look at this text. We go to other scriptures and other texts where the, the issue is addressed specifically or more clearly. And there we develop the biblical doctrine of what, or what we believe the scripture teaches. So when you come to this verse, we don't need to make the mistake of thinking that, well, if someone doesn't know, then they'll just have a little bit of hell to endure. That's not what it's teaching at all. It's not the intent of what Christ is trying to convey here. The reason that ignorance does not excuse men is because ignorance is never absolute. There is no one who walks in absolute ignorance of the reality of the divine power of the divisible attributes of God. Does that sound familiar? Romans 1. Yeah. There is no such thing as absolute ignorance ignorance of the reality, the existence, the power, the attributes of God because it's revealed in nature. So much, and the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart there's no God. He, I mean, he looks down the world around him and he says there's no God. Haven't you seen, maybe you, some of you have noticed or read about the uh, the outpouring of books by atheists, the one by Dawkins, the what is it, the, the God, the delusion... You know, just this thing called God is just—it's time to—it's time to throw it out. <laughs> Which I've not read the book, but I've read some critiques of it, so I'm not much impressed. I'm mean, just one of those situations where, if this is the best that the best that the atheists can do, then we're not—we don't have any problems. <laughs> I'm not concerned about it. But the reality is, it's becoming more and more pronounced and outspoken. There is no such thing as absolute ignorance, and Mr. Dawkins will give an account before God. He will see God and he will be a believer in God. And Also, ignorance is not an excuse because we understand that we're in the place of ignorance by our choice. In other words, ignorance is willful. So wait a minute, what do you mean? We're in the place of ignorance by our choice made by Adam for us. And you may not like the ramifications of federal, of federal headship that we're in, Adam. You may not like the implications of that, but the scripture teaches that, and it's true. That you're represented by Adam, and willfully chose ignorance, and we experience the consequences, and are guilty. With well, a good side of that. Of being represented by somebody like that. I see Neil smiling. We know the good side of that. The good side of that is it works to our advantage because Christ can represent us. So if you got a problem with Adam being your representative, you ought to have a problem with Christ being your representative. Hey, I'll take Adam if I can get Christ. So we're in ignorance, but it's by it's willful ignorance. Choose to be where we are. So ignorance is not an excuse. If it, were, if it were an excuse, the greatest mistake that the church would ever do would be going evangelizing evangelize in the world. Leave them in their ignorance. But that's not the message of Scripture. It's not the message of Jesus. You go, you teach all nations, and you baptize. Make disciples. To every creature. So the more the light is, re- the more light rejected, the greater the punishment. So we do proclaim to men, to all men, to all creatures, universal. I use the word creatures, of mankind, not animals. We proclaim to all men universal judgment of God against men if they stand guilty, they stand accountable before God, except they find refuge in Christ. So that the tribesmen in the deepest of the jungles is willfully ignorant, and is in as great a greater need of Christ as you and I are. So there will be none who will stand before God with a charge of unfair. You won't dare to stand before the righteous judge of all the earth and charge of the righteous judge of all the earth of being unfair. Who do you think you are? Romans 9 is one of those issues where Paul says, close your mouth. We don't use this word in our home, but frankly, it's shut up. You shut up before God. Who do you think you are that you dare bring a charge against Him? And then Romans chapter three, verse nineteen just very simply tells us every mouth will be closed. Those who have so glibly Proclaim their excusing of themselves for their sin. Excusing of themselves for rejecting Christ. And all the the reasons that they would give for having rejected Christ. They're going to stand before God. And what they said before so many times will all of a sudden sound hollow and foolish to their own thinking. And they won't say it. Oh, it sounded so good when I said it to those people that came and knocked on my door. It sounded so good when I sat in the pew and listened to the preacher talk about it. Yeah, I had my excuses and I listened all the reasons I shouldn't become a Christian, all the reasons I could reject Christ. But all of a sudden, you stand before Him and it will sound very hollow. And you won't even say it. Every mouth will be closed. Romans 3.19 So are you Ready? Are you dressed in readiness? He will return. It's a very sure promise to His people. His people with good reason anticipate and look forward to that day of when Christ will return. And it will be a day of great favor and blessing to those who are prepared. Those who have found their refuge in Christ. Those who have owned their sin and those who have owned their Savior. A great day of blessing and favor but it will be a great day of anguish and sorrow for many, many, many who have not prepared, who have their sin and their sin will be securely to, secured to them. there will be no separating, simply an eternal punishment, a consignment to the devil's hell. Are you ready? When he comes... That's what will happen. He will come. Again, we don't have all the details ironed out. But these we rest assured. He will. And it's favor to those who have prepared. Those who are his people. And there's a great fairness in the punishment that he will execute upon those who continue as his enemies. If you have not known Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you are his enemy. There is no neutral ground. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we do come mindful that, as we sing on occasions, that day of judgment, day of wonder will be a terrified event, Lord, apart from the from the peace and the calmness that You will bring to the hearts of Your own people, we too would just likewise be in terror. But we thank You, O oh Lord, that there is, a, there is a, an appropriate preparation and anticipation of that day. And ultimately it finds itself in repenting from sin and trusting in Christ. Lord, I pray, if there would be any here today who are not prepared for that return, O oh Lord, I that you would graciously speak to their hearts, draw them into yourself. And for us as your people who we've made that initial preparation, we have experienced that, that grace in our hearts of conversion, and yet we also know that there is much preparation in this time as we await, preparation in the time of sanctification, Lord, that we'd be faithful. Lord, that we live with that longing for that day. And that the words of our heart would be, Lord, come, come quickly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.